The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First Peter 5, beginning at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, that is Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. When a pastor is counseling someone or any kind of counselor is dealing with a person who comes with a uh, particular problem in their life, we first explore with the person what we would call the presenting problem. In other words, what does the individual think his problem is? Because sometimes the real problem is something different, and you need to find out what's hidden beneath the surface. The counselor may ask questions about what things an individual has attempted to do to answer his or her problem. And we find often that they've tried all kinds of human remedies or advice, but sometimes they have really neglected the solutions of God's Word, and we try to point them in that direction. I, in some ways, see what Peter's been doing in 1 Peter as broadcast counseling, counseling by mail. Peter never saw some of the people to whom he spoke. They were in wide, scattered territory, and surely people that he had not personally met received this letter and received good counsel. Some of you who maybe haven't known this letter so well since uh, before we were dealing with it now for a number of months have expressed to me your appreciation for the letter. And there is a, a way in which Peter hits great biblical doctrine, but he always seems to do it in a very practical way, to apply it. And there's a sense in which 
we can obey the things and be clarified on how to apply the things that he has to say. As we wrap up the letter today with the fifth chapter, I think he has some concise words hitting some things he's already said before and a few new ones too. And uh, my time's a little short, but I'm going to try to get through four points here of what Peter has to say in this conclusion. The first point is is as long as two and three put together. So in case you're anxious about when is he getting to point two, don't worry. Uh, Point number one, I think Peter speaks to say what we should do as believers about our pride. Secondly, what to do with anxiety. Thirdly, what to do about a spiritual adversary. And fourthly, and conclusively, what God will do for all his true children who trust in him. First of all, verses 5 and 6 in our text tell us what to do about our pride. Now, that might sound strange because we've said the letter is about people being opposed or persecuted. So you would think, well, why is he telling me something to do within myself when the problem's really coming from outside, from the way other people are treating me? Well, in all of this letter, it seems very important that we have the right attitude before God. And the subject of pride versus Humility has been in this letter very much. Here he writes, clothe yourselves, all of you. Now he's talking to the younger adults saying they should be humble before the elders. But all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves then under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he will exalt you. Pride is the diametrical opposite of humility. And if we are going to have godly humility, we need to know how to deal with our natural pride. When the pride we have coming into this world is strutting around on the stage of our life, humility can not find a place to get into the action at all. Now, there are people who think perhaps that humility is just a character attribute that some people naturally have. There are some men or women who are not all that assertive or arrogant, and we would say, oh, wonderful humility, whether they're Christians or not. There certainly are non-Christians who are humble in certain ways. But Peter here is talking, I believe, not about a natural endowment like having blue eyes or brown hair and having humility. He's talking about the spiritual humility that comes from the new birth every Christian has in Jesus Christ. You remember that this letter began with talking about in the very first chapter that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a new life and a whole new spiritual aspect is working its way out through us. Paul addressed this pride versus humility subject in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 when he said, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as being more significant than yourself. That's a call for Christians to do something that does not come naturally to us. Our nature is to do things by rivalry or conceit. We're born that way, some of us worse than others. Our self-interest always favors me. What about me? What's my right? Who's going to take care of me? 
And Peter is recognizing that the new birth of a Christian addresses this rather egotistical tendency that we all have. If we're going to be humbled in Christ, we have to face this. I love the anecdote about a a great Christian man in Britain of a century ago, G.K. Chesterton, wrote some wonderful things. He's really on the plane with C.S. Lewis, maybe more philosophical than Lewis, I would say. But Chesterton was a man of letters. He wrote detective stories and all kinds of things. And he was addressed one time by the newspaper, the Times of London, who sent letters out to people like him, various British authors and kind of the wise men of, of England at that time, got a letter from the editor of the Times of London because he was trying to gather their responses. And he said, would you folks please write me a a relatively concise page or so response answering this question. What is wrong with the world today? What is wrong with the world today? Well, Chesterton certainly won the award for the most concise response. He wrote back and said, dear editor, I am... Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am what's wrong with the world today. That was a response of Christian humility. A man who recognized that in him dwelt a kind of monster wanting to exert itself all the time. And if he was going to ever be obedient to God and Christ, his pride had to be brought low. I've come to think over the years that of all the different graces of the Holy Spirit, the word humility summarizes perhaps more of them than anything else as going against our nature and, you know, what so beautifully summarizes the character of Jesus Christ. But humility, here was all power in the universe, in a human body, in the person of Jesus. The might that made this world, that that through star constellations into being, we are taught in the truth of Scripture that the might of God himself dwelt in Christ, that he had this enormous power, but he chose to come among us and be the servant of all. Peter said here, quoting, he's quoting actually from Psalm 3 when he said, God opposes the proud. Why does God oppose the proud? Because the proud trust themselves. You can't trust God when you're trusting yourself, primarily. David said in Psalm 138, though the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly person, but the haughty person he knows only from afar. And so Peter said here in verse 6, his advice, his exhortation as he was closing out the letter, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time he may exalt you. I was thinking about that phrase, the hand of God. My sons are men now. They're way too old for this. But when they were little, I can certainly remember times when we might have been crossing a road through traffic, and maybe one of my sons was four or five and certainly too old for me to pick him up and carry him across the road. I could have done that, but he would have probably thought, what's Dad doing this for? I'm a big boy. So because he was a big boy, I either took his hand in my hand or I put my hand on his shoulder and firmly held him and said, come on, son, we're going to cross the traffic. Let me 
direct you and hold on to you here. There's that image in the Old Testament. David once was thinking in Psalm 32 of the Lord's hand being on him, and he said in that occasion, Psalm 32, 8, he said, the Lord's hand is heavy on me. He meant God was bearing down more than he wanted. And yet, how do we know that the reason God's hand seemed heavy was perhaps that David's pride needed to be checked, or perhaps he was entering a time of danger and he needed the guidance and holding back that his father would give him and to protect him. Let me tell you, if your body has a tumor that needs removed from your body, then you, you go and look for a skilled surgeon and you might tell your friend, well, I'm looking for someone whose experienced hand with a scalpel can deal with my illness. We ought to be praying always, Lord, don't take your hand off me. Even if it has to bear down and hold me tighter than is comfortable, Lord, I need your hand to protect and to guide. In fact, the Christian church is nothing but a gathering of souls who have been humbled before God as Father and Christ as Savior and who say, I want to be under the hand of God. I want to obey that hand in a humble way. God has to bring us low, you see, before he lifts us up. Well, that's the first point, but here's the second that's shorter. After advice on what to do with our pride, the second summary point that Peter makes is in verse 7 when he says what to do with anxiety. And here's very familiar words. Casting your anxieties or your cares on him, for he cares for you. In the church of my adolescence, we uh, had, just as we're having a youth service tonight, we had an assistant pastor in charge of youth, and he would challenged some of us to do things that were outside our comfort zone. He wanted me to give a testimony once at a city rescue mission. And they said, well, Michael, look at some passage that you can talk about for five minutes that, that will testify. And, oh, I'm furiously flipping through my Bible. What, what in the world can I get? And I came up with somehow with First Peter 5, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. I thought, surely that could apply to people that are going to be in my audience at the rescue mission. Well, Prominent in my audience at the rescue mission was a drunk in the front pew, sound asleep, snoring the whole time I was speaking. So this was a challenging uh, thing. But I got up to give my testimony, and I looked at the back wall of the mission sanctuary, and there emblazoned on the wall, it said, Casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Isn't that a sort of a precious kind of verse? Casting your cares on him your anxieties, your worries, the things that maybe keep you from sleeping at night, the things that you're convinced are going to go awry somehow or other if you don't do something and you don't feel capable of doing it. Maybe you, rec- you recall the two New Testament characters, sisters, Mary and Martha of Bethany, and how Jesus came to their house one time and a dinner was being prepared. I suppose they were roasting lamb maybe in the oven, and uh, somebody was wondering who was going to pour the wine and where were the napkins and who's going to set the table and all of those things. And Martha was doing that all by herself. And here was Mary sitting over at the side just listening to Jesus. She didn't seem to be carrying her load very well. Martha was bustling around. My family had an expression for the way she was bustling. We would say like a chicken with her head cut off. 
And uh, she was complaining. She was bitter in her spirit. Come on, sister, get on board and help with this. Martha was anxious with cares, cares that were miscellaneous, that were small, that were not life-shaking. But they loaded her down. Maybe we wonder how exactly do we cast cares on the Lord? I think you get some idea in your mind. It means to remove them from your possession and put them in his possession. I've actually suggested people sometimes when I see them all wound up with cares to write down the things that they're worried about, that the cares that they say, oh, this or that is bound to happen. I'm going to lose my job. This is going to take place. Uh, I won't have enough money to retire. Whatever we're talking about. My husband doesn't love me anymore. Write down your cares. And then if you have to, in prayer before the Lord, from your list, say, Lord, here's a list. I'm taking these cares and putting them at your feet. I want to leave them there. Will you help me do that? Will you help me to walk away from these things and not to act as if I have to make them happen or could make them happen? And, Lord, I realize many of them are never going to happen. So I cast these cares in your direction and ask you, my God, to take them and keep them. Maybe you don't have the confidence to do that because you've asked a friend at some time in the past to, to take a delegated task for you. You've had a lot of things and maybe a, uh, an insightful friend has come along and said, hey, you, you've got a lot on your plate. Let me do this for you, whatever it is. And you said, boy, you know, that would be great if you could do that. And then in two weeks you found out it didn't happen. They forgot about you. They didn't do anything. And you've, So now you say, well... I've found you can't delegate these things. You've got to fuss about them yourself because a friend let me down. Well, didn't we sing in our middle hymn about a friend who's closer than a brother? And don't you think that your God will prove to be responsible when you give your cares to him? Why? Because the text says he cares for you. And his care for you far overshadows whatever it is you're worrying about. I love a passage in Isaiah 49, verse 15. It's a wonderful metaphor there where the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah and says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Although she may forget, I, the Lord, will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. You hear what's being said there? It's almost unthinkable, not entirely, but almost unthinkable that a mother would abandon her child. In these days of people doing drug-crazed acts, we know that's not impossible. But Isaiah is saying, that may even happen, but the Lord won't forget you. His compassion is greater than a mother for her new child. He cares for you. Well, then, very quickly, Peter brings in something that he hasn't commented on much in this letter up till this point, and that is what to do about your spiritual adversary. And mainly here he says, know that you have one, for sure. You're the evil, the persecution, the opposition that you face for being a Christian, which is the main subject of this letter— has a face and a personality and a CEO 
behind it. Someone plotting deviously how to get at you, how to bring you down. So Satan is being acknowledged here. I think Peter was almost certainly thinking of what Jesus said to him that's recorded in Luke 22 that happened the night before the cross when Jesus spoke to Peter and said, Simon, calling him his, his name, Little Stone, Simon, Satan has petitioned to have you so he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. That is a wonderful passage. Do you realize what Jesus was saying? Simon, I have foreseen the whole thing. You know, the denials of me, they're going to happen in a matter of, oh, no, no, I'll never deny you. Sure, just wait. But he also foresaw, by having prayed for him, that Peter was going to return. And after he'd returned, he could strengthen brothers who would be in the same kind of a place where the claws and the plots and the wiles of the evil one would be turned on them. It's a, it's a great mistake about Satan to not believe in him, but it's an opposite mistake if you cower in dread of him. The Bible makes it plain that while there is an enemy who works against you, he's on God's leash. He's always on God's leash. We're warned to be respectful of him, but his power is not supreme. And he can be resisted according to the word of God. Greater is he who's in us than he who is in the world. And Romans 16 promises the God of all peace will soon enough crush Satan under your feet. Well, fourthly, a conclusive point comes here. 1 Peter 5.10. And I think it forms a fitting final word to the whole letter. The first three points gave us things that we need to do. They tell us things Christian disciples can do as God's Spirit gives us a new life. And you heard them. Deal with your pride. Uh, I forgot what the second one is. Deal with your anxiety and deal with your adversary. But notice the fourth point is not what you can do. It's what God does. What God will surely do for his child of grace. Peter concludes here, advising disciples of Jesus with this capstone point, quote, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion, that is rule, forever. If you flip back to the beginning of this epistle, the first page the first time we considered it a number of months ago, we brought out the, the work of God. He was writing to the elect exiles of uh, all these territories who were in Christ according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ. And the action of God. Look at verse uh, uh, 5, one five. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What is the last and conclusive great thing Peter has to say? I've given you some great advice. Deal with your pride. Deal with your anxieties. Deal with your adversary. You can do those things by faith. But know when it's all said and done, 
God is working on your behalf, and he will do for his people in Christ great, great things. If we would jump ahead, I'll, I'll just do this quickly. Second Peter, hopefully we'll get there, Second Peter 2.9, says God knows how to rescue godly people from trials. Now, I, I, I could admit that in my humanity I could have a little argument with Peter about when he says, after you've suffered for a little while. I see people suffering a whole lifetime with major, major issues. I see elderly people suffering terribly in the late stages of life with various things. There's so many things that we suffer from, physical maladies, mental, emotional, as well as spiritual. And remember, we looked at Job a number of months ago, last year actually, and Job suffered unbelievably. And it didn't seem like a little while that he had to wait and ask and pray and wail as he was asking God, why, when, how? But I would say that these words were fulfilled for Job. And I want you to notice that some of the commentators point out the Holy Spirit guided Peter here to, to end this passage with the idea that he needed four verbs, not one, four, to spell out God's entire intended work in every believer who trusts him. Do you see it? God will restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish. We could do a word study of each of those. I'm not for time's sake. But it took four words to rise as a crescendo to say, your God will work in this quadruple way, in you for his eternal glory. And he will accomplish what he intends to do. The sovereign grace of God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. You see Peter's posture at the end of the letter after he's given all kinds of advice. Now he's worshiping. He's holding up the great God of all gods and says to him, be power and dominion forever. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Believe it or not, in that simple phrase, you have a microcosm of the entire Christian life. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Father, you said you will lift us up after we have suffered a little while. For those in the midst of their little while where the pain or the opposition is great, where temptation is pressing hard, where grief stands like a brick wall before them, will you, O God, put your hand upon them. Lead them to Christ. Show us his great humility and how he became a model for us. We thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.